All right. Well, uh, thankful to the Lord that he brought us together again on this day, uh, through, safely through the week. And uh, we're, uh, we're coming to the end of our series on uh, Christ uh, throughout Scripture. And the, the last, uh, not the next last chapter, I guess, uh, I think Derek and uh, Dustin are going to teach next week on the conclusion, kind of wrap everything up. But this chapter concludes the, uh, the Bible story. Um, and it has to do with the new creation. So uh, I'd like to pray, and then uh, we'll get started. So if you'll bow with me in prayer. Glorious and gracious God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather with your people and worship you today. Uh, we pray for your blessing upon our time, and we thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit to help us to worship you rightly uh, we also thank you for the word of God that you've given us that we might know you rightly. And we pray that you would um, join the two together in our own hearts, Lord, that your spirit would quicken to us your word. And especially, Lord, today as we consider uh, the great inheritance of the saints that we have and the glorious hope that we have in the return of our Savior Jesus and eternity with you. And so, Lord, bless your word and bless this time together. Uh, and fill our hearts with joy and peace, Lord, as we believe these things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 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 Uh, if, you're gonna, if you permit me, uh, I'd like to begin today with a little bit of a personal testimony. Uh, without going into too much detail, on January the 2nd, 1977, <clears throat> I had somewhat of a Damascus Road conversion experience. Uh, it was sudden. And it was life transforming for me. Uh, the result of being born again for me was, number one, joy and peace filled my heart, my soul. Uh, number two, I had an immediate desire to read the Bible. And I remember digging through my old boxes and pulling out a King James Bible uh, with the zipper on it, and a little cross that hung on a chain that my grandparents had given me back when I was eight years old. And I remember reading 1 John the first book of the Bible that I really read after being saved, and it was such a blessing. Uh, number three, I wanted to tell everybody about Jesus, uh, who he was, what he had done, that he was real, and that the gospel was true. And then four, I had an eagerness and an expectation for the imminent return of Christ that was birthed into my heart. I knew Jesus was coming back, and I could hardly wait. Uh, perhaps some of you here can testify to that similar experience. Uh, I know not all come to faith with such a dramatic way, uh, but I believe that most revivals throughout history have included an increased expectancy of the return of Christ. Uh, for me, that's been almost 45 years ago, and that expectancy has waned at times, but it still remains a constant thought in my mind. Uh, I believe one of the main reasons for this, besides the groaning of my own heart to be free of sin, is the constant reminders we have as we read our Bibles, especially the New Testament. The return of Christ is mentioned in almost every one of the epistles. Our Heavenly Father wants us to think about, to long for, and to encourage each other with the future hope of His return and the inheritance that we have in Christ. A Christian's hope doesn't lie in this world 
getting better and better or in who wins the next election or a thousand other things that we can root our hope in. Uh, but it lies in what Paul wrote to Titus, writing, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is my goal today, to call us to consider, to expect, and to long for more deeply the return of our great God and Savior and the age to come. As Romans 8 reminds us, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Remember Pastor Mark's series on uh, the book of Revelation that we just finished recently. Uh, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those when you have time. Uh, at the beginning of his series, though, uh, Pastor Mark stated that the goal of that series was to grow more in love with and confidence in Jesus. You think about the book of Revelation, is that what you think about, growing more in love and confidence in Jesus? Uh, but also to help us endure and persevere to the end, uh, which is what we really need today. So I don't think it's a coincidence that when Christians experience the most persecution, they also find their endurance and their patience helped by the promise of the return of Christ and the consummation of the new age. So as we begin today, um, let's remember this big picture of the, of the Bible and the subtitle of the book that we're using as our roadmap, uh, how the full story of scripture reveals the full glory of Christ. So as a summary, just a, as a context, I guess, for the new creation and the consummation of the ages, uh, just want to briefly remind us of the summary of the Bible story. We begin with creation, the fall, redemption, and consummation. So you can summarize the whole Bible in those four words, and that's a great way to share the gospel sometimes with people. Uh, so let's just briefly look at creation. And John Lynn, I believe, it seems like a long time ago, but John Lynn taught us that class on creation. And uh, we see, excuse me, we see the foundational verse of Scripture that God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. And then we also see that after he created everything that he made, behold, it was very good. So remember, before sin came, all of creation was very good. Uh, then we see that the Lord God planted this garden in Eden in the east, and he put there the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then the Lord put the man in that garden in a perfect environment that was fruitful, that was lush, that was beautiful, and that was ideally suited for human flourishing. Uh, God made us, and he knows exactly what it, it takes for us to flourish in our humanity. Uh, then our brother Jason talked to us about the fall very aptly, very ably, where he, uh, he reviewed God's command to Adam and Eve that the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then we see the act itself of disobedience of Adam and Eve that really has, has cast us into this 
condition and state in which the world now exists. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. One of the saddest verses, if not the saddest verse in the Bible. Uh, and of course, as a result of that, God curses the creation. Uh, he says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And of course we know because of sin, man is separated from God. The Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden and placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. But for grace, that's where we would be today. Uh, but thank God, main part the story of the Bible is the story of redemption. And God uh, sends this first promise back in Genesis, uh, foundational promise, the, the proto-evangelium. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, the promise of a redeemer. And then, of course, God in his mercy slays an animal and covers their nakedness, uh, sheds blood as a type of the, the coming redeemer and uh, gives them uh, skins to cover their nakedness. So as redemptive history unfolds, and this is what really has uh, taken up most of our series in this class, is God establishes covenants uh, with Noah, with Abraham, <clears throat> Moses, and David, what our brothers have so excellently taught us in this class. I apologize for my voice today. <clears throat> so, all of those covenants really are based upon and the fulfillment of this promise in Genesis 3, 15 of a Redeemer. God is bringing about his purposes. Uh, and then several weeks ago, our brother Tim taught us about the Redeemer coming, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a sinless life, to die a substitutionary death for his people, to rise from the dead, and to establish this new covenant. Uh, so the gospel of the kingdom has come already. It is coming, and it will come someday in its fullness. Uh, as we've been reminded, we're living in what we call the already and the not yet, time of history. Uh, we just finished a book study by Dane Ortland. I would uh, commend this book to anyone, uh, but it's a follow-up to his book on, uh, what was the first one? Yeah, Gentle and Lowly. This is called Deeper, uh, about spiritual growth, really. But there's a passage in here I want to read. It uh, has to do with uh, the kingdom coming. It says, uh, it's natural to think of all of human history that is one fairly seamless storyline that will be brought to a decisive culmination one day when Jesus returns. But according to the Bible, the most decisive turning point in history has already happened. 
When Jesus came, and especially when he died and rose again, God was not simply providing salvation. He was also launching the new creation. The end of history, when Eden 2.0 would wash over this miserable world, was launched back in the middle of history. So uh, that's a good way for us to think about that. The new creation has already come. And uh, so in one sense, uh, we're just going to see a culmination of that. Uh, the new creation has already come, and it's already broken into this age. The Lord Jesus is the first man of the new creation. And he inaugurated the new creation by his redemptive work. Now all those who are born again, all of us who have put our faith in the work of Jesus Christ, become a part of that new creation. Uh, we see here a very familiar verse in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Uh, but don't we live with attention in our hearts and in our lives as we wait for the appearing of our God and our Savior? Uh, the New Testament, though, tells us that this creation that we live in today was subjected to futility, uh, although not willingly, uh, because it was not creation that sinned, but it was man that sinned. Uh, we, know, we see this in Romans 8, where it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Don't you love verses like that? For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Uh, our brother Bo pointed that out to me, that creation is groaning, and we know that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about climate change. We see storms. We see earthquakes. We see all the things that are taking place in the world. It's creation groaning, and uh, we see that groaning all around us. But we also see uh, that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. God subjected creation to futility and in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So creation's restoration is closely linked to the ultimate salvation of sinful humanity. When the redeemed people of God are fully set free from sin and corruption, then creation will be restored to its pristine condition and perhaps even better. Uh, God's original purposes will not be denied. Uh, so we, uh, we see that we know that the whole creation's been growing together in the pains of childbirth until now. Uh, but not only creation, but we ourselves groan, as we've acknowledged. We who have the first truths of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, which we've already quoted. For who hopes for what he sees? For if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Sometimes we need the Lord to give us more patience, don't we? Grace to wait. Uh, so I pose a question. Do you guys, are you all groaning? I think everybody in here would, would say amen to that. We groan in many ways. Uh, so in the Old Testament, though, uh, we see types of this new creation appearing. And we see, for example, 
the Old Testament types, we see a person, Abraham, the man of faith, who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He left his country and went to a foreign land where he did not know. And he was, he was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. We have Abraham as the person of the new covenant creation in the Old Testament. But we also have a people. We have the nation of Israel that God called out and set his particular love upon, delivered out of bondage and <clears throat> gave, him, gave them his law. And then we see the place of the new creation in the Old Testament type of the promised land, the land of Israel, uh, that God drove out the enemies. And it was a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, so, but then thankfully we have the New Testament anti-types. We have the Lord Jesus Christ as the person, the first man of the new creation. And then who's the people? We have the church. All those who have been born again and made new creatures in Christ Jesus. And then, praise God, we have a place, the new heaven and the new earth, where we will dwell forever with the Lord. So these are the different types of the, uh, of the new creation in the Bible. So redemption is more, and I often tell, talk to people about this, because I think it's a great way to share the gospel. Because when you talk to people about, do you know, do you know the good news? Probably, do you, most people will say, Jesus died for my sins. You know, that's, that's kind of their the whole capsulization of the gospel is Jesus died for my sins. Jesus died on the cross. But redemption is so much more than the forgiveness of our sins. Not that that isn't important, but it prepares us to live forever with God. The forgiveness of our sins is what God provided for us so that we could be, live in his presence. So as the confession says, the purpose of man is to know God and to enjoy him forever. So when we talk about the consummation at the end of the scriptures, uh, you all remember the series that we went through, the 50 core truths of the Christian faith uh, by Greg Allison. Uh, the, uh, the summary of the chapter on the new creation or on the new heavens and the new earth said this, the new heaven and the new earth is the final an eternal state of the universe resulting from the, com from the complete redemption of the elect and the renewal of the current fallen creation, all for the glory of God. So, again, a question. On what does your future hope lie? Think about that. Especially as we live in this world, the dust of this world collects on us. We go through our days. We experience difficulty and struggles and heartaches. Uh, where is your hope rooted and grounded? <clears throat> what are you looking forward to? Are you looking forward just to, you know, Thanksgiving? How far ahead are you looking forward? Uh, what, what sustains your hope? Because nothing in this world is going to sustain your hope. Everything is going to fall short. Of that, because we were not made for the things of this world, we were made for God. So, what do you think about? Do you, do you allow your mind to run, to dwell upon your future in Christ, to get excited about eternity and being with Him? Do you think about it? <clears throat> the Old Testament presents us with a hope for God to do something new. Uh, he's he's going to renew His people. He's going to establish a new covenant in Jeremiah 31 there. 
Then in Isaiah 65, he promises this. And I'm just going to read this passage instead of putting it up on the screen. If you just listen to me. In Isaiah 65, he says, For be, <clears throat> excuse me. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things that former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And then over, jumping over to verse 24, he says, before they call, I will answer. While they yet were speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So, God promises to create a new heavens and a new earth. And he, God promises, to, God's promises focus on the renewal of human existence, including the removal of the original curse, no more weeping, death, unproductive work, or pain in childbirth. It also portrays a reversal of the physical creation as well. So, you know, there is a minor debate on how that's going to take place. Obviously, some people think that God's going to completely destroy this, this universe, this creation, and recreate it from the very beginning. And some people think it's going to be changed and renewed. So that's, a, that's a, really a minor debate because God's going to do what he's going to do. Uh, but um, it's similar maybe to the flood and God you know, deluged the world and yet brought forth life from that. But in the New Testament, uh, Peter writes about scoffers denying the return of Christ and he writes about the destruction of the present world and the end of the age in 2 Peter chapter 3. So we see this in chapter 3, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they'll say, where is the promise of his coming? Sometimes don't you feel like that? Where, when is Jesus going to come back? Uh, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing just as they were from the beginning of creation. But they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the day, Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should, come, should reach repentance. So we see that fire is going to be the element that God uses to destroy this present creation. Uh, but like the flood, it may not be completely annihilated, and the earth may be transformed by it. Uh, but we know that judgment is coming. Peter goes on to say, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. 
Judgment is coming. Uh, but God is being patient, isn't he? Towards sinful humanity, giving people time to repent. Uh, so Peter concludes this section with this verse. Uh, so since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, God keeps his promises. We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So how should we then live? Good question. How should we then live? God has chosen a unique genre of writing to describe this new creation, hasn't he? Uh, we call it apocalyptic literature. And our authors say it gives us a symbolic universe that points to and interprets reality as it is conveying truth about reality in God. We see it in Daniel. We see it in Ezekiel in the old, some old, other Old Testament prophets, but we see it primarily in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Um, so, I'm gonna, again, I'm not going to put the whole Revelation 21 and 22 up here, but I just want to read a few selected verses uh, as we uh, look and see how the scriptures, again, in drawing really from Isaiah 65, because there's... Very similar words uh, that John used to describe this. Uh, we see that I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be them as their God, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. I'm going to be out of work. Yeah. <laughs> Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. And he goes on and talks about the temple in the city. There is no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. But its light will be that by its light the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, <laughs> but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So what a glorious picture uh, that we see 
But one of the errors, if we're not careful, is that we need to avoid spiritualizing the new heaven and the new earth in such a way that its physicality is either minimized or denied. The Gnostics rejected the goodness of the physical creation. But God made us soul and body to be united together forever, living on a physical earth in his immediate presence. The whole universe becomes the new Garden of Eden, where we dwell with our God forever and ever. Faith will become sight. Our authors in our book uh, talk about how this, all this is going to look and sound and feel and taste even. Uh, how many of you all have read Randy Alcorn's book on heaven? Uh, may I commend that to you? Because it, it fuels your sanctified imagination. Some would say there's, there's some speculation there. I don't think anything violates scripture, uh, but maybe it goes a little bit beyond what scripture reveals, but it does fuel your sanctified imagination for sure. Uh, but the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and it's described as a perfect cube. There's only one place in scripture where there's a perfect cube, and that is the holy of holies in the temple, uh, the place where God uniquely manifested his covenantal presence. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said this about heaven, the enjoyment, what time is it? I'm sorry, okay. The enjoyment of heaven is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven, fully enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but God is the substance. But these are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. End of quote. So the new creation is a place filled with joy and empty of sorrow. And what is central to the new creation is the triune God himself. I exhort us all to strive to make him so in our lives now in preparation for that day. And uh, as we draw to a conclusion, <clears throat> I just want to, this was the review of what I read in Revelation there, uh, but I'd like to just mention four applications of the new creation and the reality of that. First of all, it should encourage us in our pursuit of holiness and godliness and also fuel our prayers. Uh, second, it should fill our hearts with joy and anticipation of the return of Jesus. Third, <clears throat> we need to take more seriously the Great Commission and tell others the good news about Jesus coming as the Savior of sinners and also coming again as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You know, that should be a part of our gospel presentation. Jesus is coming back. Uh, because it doesn't just, doesn't just end with, uh, he came to save us. He came to save us for a purpose. And finally, uh, especially pertinent today, to help us to endure suffering and persecution and to persevere to the end, uh, which is what all Christians will do.